looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. All right, everyone, welcome back to another show of Make Money Make Sense. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte. This week, we're joined by a good buddy of mine, Paul Moore. Uh, Paul is the founder and managing partner of Wellings Capital. Um, Paul's been on the show before. If you guys have listened a few episodes back, I think it was early last year. But Paul, thanks so much for making time and coming back on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here, Dante. Yeah, glad to have you. So first thing, thank you for sending me this. This is your uh, latest release, your book with Bigger Pockets, Storing Up Profits, talking about self-storage. Um, really enjoyed it. Lots of value in there. I highlighted, underlined, and really checked out a lot of value I had. So um, real quick, though, introduce yourself, Paul, to our audience. Tell them a little bit more about what you do. Yeah. Uh, so right now, I am the manager of a commercial real estate investment fund. Uh, this is a fund for accredited investors who want complete passivity. Uh, we invest in self-storage, mobile home parks, apartments, uh, RV parks, light industrial. Uh, our goal is to provide investors a mix of operators, asset types, geographies, and strategies, and obviously projects. So uh, we're trying to be as recession resistant as we can. So far in our various funds, we placed about $75 million and uh, we are looking to uh, launch a new fund later this year that'll be uh, quite a larger endeavor. So that's where we're at now. My history is I went through uh, residential, single family flips, waterfront lot flips. Uh, I've been a real estate broker. Uh, I've been involved briefly on the lending side. I've uh, done a number of websites that uh, sell leads to realtors. I've had one going for almost 18 years now. Uh, I've got um, history in building ground up multifamily and operating that for a number of years in the North Dakota Bakken region. And I've made a lot of mistakes over the years. I mean, hey, that's why I had a podcast called How to Lose Money for Years. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, you've done a lot. You've got a lot of experience, which is great. So I wanted to have you come back on. I, but real quick, let's let's touch on the book here. So talk to us about how that came about. You published it with Bigger Pockets, which is a huge accomplishment in itself. And I know there's a little delay of getting it released because of COVID. But talk to us about the book. You know what your thoughts were, what you put on paper. Yeah, you know um, what when I discovered self storage uh, a number of years ago. I immediately went to Amazon and said, okay, I'm going to order every book on self-storage. And, you know, honestly, there weren't a lot. There was one really good one on self-storage marketing, but that was very specific to marketing and uh, not a lot except for a handful of self-published books. So I started writing, uh, I started sort of in the form of writing special reports for my own website. And then I just kept expanding it, which is how I've done two other books in the past and to a place where now it's it's a full blown you know book then i presented it to a couple different publishers it was accepted by one then it was rejected by um, uh, bigger pockets then it was immediately it was soon after that it was accepted then covid hit 
And we had a delay there. You know, I think the delay was really providential, Dante, because during that time of delay, COVID, um, you know, ravaged a lot of uh, different arenas and then a lot of them bounced back, of course. But self-storage just emerged as this hero. Wall Street Journal, New York Times, uh, Business Insider, all these people reporting on self-storage uh, self emerging as this amazing asset class from COVID. There's a lot of reasons for that, and we could get into that, but that's the history of the book. Yeah, no, I love it. Like I said, really enjoyed the book. Lots of great information. Um, I, I learned a bunch in there, so appreciate that. And you're totally right, because when I went to originally learn about storage, I went on Amazon and grabbed some books. And, and let me tell you, some of them were just awful. There was some with like pixelated photos, self-published on the front, a million typos, and just the information out there isn't that great. But now we're starting to see some more books come out like yours. Uh, my friend AJ, he had a book come out that was pretty good. And then yeah. uh, just, you know, some podcasts are coming out. So love that. I was but, on I was on AJ's podcast the other day and we talked about the red versus the blue pill. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Yep, you got them both here. I've got them both here as well. No, they're, yeah. uh, they're great info. So I, talk to us a little bit about your strategy with storage as uh, Wellings is looking at potential deals. You, you mentioned the book, there's really three strategies for storage. Um, yeah. And, you know, I can let you talk about those briefly and, and what you guys are targeting. Yeah. So when we looked at self-storage, uh, we were initially really impressed and we went out actually to North Carolina specifically, and we started looking at self-storage facilities and as we were looking at them, we said, gosh, do we really have the team and the talent and the technology and the expertise to really manage these assets that we've never done before? Right. And uh, we had to be honest and say, you know, we've got investors wanting to give us millions of dollars because we had built, built up a quite of an investment investor following by then. But I don't know if I would invest with us knowing everything I know about us. In fact, I wouldn't. So we had to face the fact that, you know, maybe self-storage wasn't the best fit for Wellings Capital. Well, we were getting to know some great operators and we decided, wait, we've got these investors who don't know about some of these operators and they're really eager to invest. We've got these operators. Some of them are really good at raising money and some aren't very well known at all. And so we decided on a new strategy and that would be putting together investor uh, investors into port, you know, into groups and investing in a portfolio of assets. In fact, like I said earlier, different asset types and operators as well. And so that's our approach to investing in self-storage. Like you said, there are three, and I really, um, actually there are four strategies to investing in self-storage. The first one, I wouldn't think too many of our listeners would be that interested in. But the first one would be buying an existing, stabilized, fully functioning self-storage facility. Now that is the strategy used by a lot of folks, but those folks are called REITs, yep. institutional buyers, life insurance companies, large family offices, uh, private equity firms, You know, people like um, uh, Blackstone who are trying to acquire you know, maybe a hundred million or maybe a billion dollars more likely in assets all at once. And so that's not typical for most of us to, you know, want to just something that's stabilized, something that is predictable, 
something without a lot of value add or headaches or crises or lease up contingencies, things like that. The reason I bring that group up though, is they provide an amazing exit for self-storage, mobile home parks, multifamily, et cetera. When you can put together a portfolio of stabilized deals under typically one flag, one property management system, one asset management, uh, you know, one basically set of operating procedures, one set of websites, it can be very, very powerful for your exit. In fact, you can sometimes reduce the cap rate from, let's say, 5% on exit to, let's say, 4%. And that might not sound like a big movement. But if you do the math on that, that is a potentially 20% increase in price. And if you've got 66, for example, percent leverage on a 20% increase in price, that looks like a three times 20 or about a 60% return on equity to the investors just from one movement, 1% movement in the cap rate. And so that's, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that is an exit. No, no, that's any. Good. And I'm going to, I'm going to stop you there just to touch base. You're talking about, you know, these REITs, these bigger institutional players, they can uh, purchase at a lower cap rate there for a higher price. And correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, that's because they can stomach or they don't need to meet such a high return as some of maybe our equity partners need to meet. Yeah. They can have a lower return. So therefore they're going to pay a, a larger price. And like you said, they're a great partner to have on the exit side of things. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So that's one strategy to build a self-storage empire, be a REIT. (laughs) The second strategy would be um, ground-up construction. And this is the riskiest, but potentially most profitable path, as it is in other asset types as well. Ground-up construction would look like finding a hole in the market, finding a place where, you know, there's a a need, a meaningful shortfall. I can take you uh, to Nashville and drive you around and show you that it really looks like it's maybe overpopulated with self-storage. Maybe the supply and demand is out of whack and that very well could be, but I could drive you south to some of the suburbs there like Bellevue or Belmont and show you that last I was there, there was no self-storage and they had a huge shortfall Uh, in the supply and demand arena. So it would be a great place to build a new facility. However, sometimes those locations are there for a reason. Either the land is cost prohibitive, uh, there's no old buildings to retrofit, or the uh, community and or the government in the community doesn't want an unsightly industrial looking building. Of course, as we all know, self-storage is looking better and better than it used to, you know, now with some of the beautiful multi-story facilities. But that's ground up construction, tough, uh, lots of challenges, lots of potential profit. Of course, we all know that developers, you know, usually end up being either the wealthiest people on the planet or delivering pizzas. So uh, that is second strategy. The third strategy would be uh, retrofit. And our friend AJ Osborne is the very best example I know of a retrofit guy because he took, and this is made popular on the July 4th or 3rd, maybe 2018 Bigger Pockets podcast, which is where he talked about buying the Reno, Nevada Super Kmart, selling off a lot of the parking lot, 
cutting it in half, investing two and a half million dollars of cash or equity, five million in debt. So he had seven and a half million at project completion. And when I was on the phone with him in December of that same year, he got an offer come across his email for, I believe it was 26 million. And he wasn't even totally leased up. He was still in the lease up phase, correct? I think he was at 45% lease up. Yeah. Uh, But they saw the potential. Now, I hope it's okay for me to talk about this. He's gotten offers. (laughs) He's got at least three offers as of last week, uh, over 30 million for this property. And he is turning them down because now he's talking about building a second floor of leasing inside the building. And so... AJ is crushing it with this retrofit strategy. If you want to do the retrofit strategy, get Radius Plus. Again, the same software you would want to use to find the original building if you were going to build a site and look for abandoned, or I shouldn't say abandoned, but you know, empty Sears, Kmart's, uh, old Walmart neighborhood stores, um, Toys R Us, yep. and AJ told me the other day he was even doing an office building now in a downtown location. Pretty exciting stuff. So lots of ways to retrofit. My company, Wellings Capital, recently invested in Haverhill, Massachusetts, which is just north of Boston, in an old five-story warehouse that's being retrofit into self-storage. And we're looking at another one now. Well, so that's Paul, a, the, to touch on third strategy. Yep. So third strategy and to touch on the radius plus tool you're just talking about, um, it, it's a great tool. And for those that are unaware, it shows you where existing storage is, where uh, upcoming storage or uh, recently approved storage is coming. And a quick story with that, my partner and I, we uh, locally in town, a uh, very small storage facility, about 20,000 square feet, and it was only 50% occupied. And the guy wow. was paying a, a landscaping company or a fertilizer company. They would occupy the storefront for free. And in return, they'd manage the property. Obviously, wow. this is a really bad deal because they weren't managing the property. They were sitting in a storefront, which could have um, vendor items for sale. And so we offered on the property. And as we did, you know, we were firming up all of our numbers. And I was like, let me just check Radius Plus to see, you know, what other demand is coming. And directly across the street, there was 100,000 square feet of storage being built. And I was like, that's crazy. That's a mall. They actually took part of this mall and did drive-in storage wow. of 100,000 square feet. So we instantly you know, went back to the seller, dropped our offer price by X amount. We were comfortable because all this oversupply coming directly across the street, you know, yeah. new condition, uh, competition. And unfortunately, we didn't get that. But maybe even fortunately, we didn't get that because of all the supply coming into that market there. So Radius mm. Plus is a, is a great tool that really yeah. helped us out on that deal. It really is. You know, I run into people on bigger pockets on the forums saying, Hey, should I buy this self storage deal? And they don't even know Radius Plus exists. And so that there's all kinds of problems with that. Right. But, they're not doing their words, per you capita, know exists, you know, yeah. per capita research. Uh, maybe yeah. they need to do a feasibility study, whatever that right. is. So, yeah, pretty interesting, yeah. but it kind of related because talking about Radius Plus and then talking about repurposing an old abandoned mall with, with drive-in storage. I mean, I think that's the coolest yeah. thing. So, yeah, um, absolutely. Well, um, so you can see that this is quite profitable. And of course, for AJ, that was probably more profitable than, um, than he calculated my, you know, <laughs> doing a down, you know, a ground up construction ever could have been. Of course, everybody's not AJ. Everybody doesn't buy the Super Kmart in Reno. 
And, uh, you know, I think a lot of us miss most of those big opportunities because let's face it, self-storage is harder to do ground up now. The costs have gone up, labor shortages, there's lots of issues. And so I like our fourth strategy, and this is the one we could spend two or three full shows on if you want to, but uh, that is buying value add self-storage. There are 53,000 or so self-storage facilities in the U.S., most are owned by mom and pop operators, which means, hey, they don't have the knowledge, the resources, or the desire to increase income and therefore maximize value for themselves and their investors. They don't have to because the market has done it for them. The market, yep. because of cap rate compression, which has gone from, let's say, 10% to, let's say, 5%, over the last several years has done the heavy lifting for them. Many of them are mediocre, but that's okay because they're getting amazing offers. So they know what their property's worth because they're getting offered, you know, more than they've ever imagined and they haven't had to do any heavy lifting. The great news is that means that there's lots of opportunities to upgrade these. Now, Dante, when I first heard of value-add self-storage, I think I laughed out loud because I thought, what could that be? I mean, there's where, where are the lighting and uh, cabinets and appliances and fake hardwood floors and bark parks and all those wonderful things? And we're talking about four pieces of sheet metal, some rivets, a floor, and a door. Yep. But let me tell you, there are so many value-add opportunities in self-storage, more than I've seen in most other arenas for a long time. Uh, some obvious ones, uh, mom and pops are typically underpricing their units. They're not dynamically pricing their units. They're not dynamically sizing their units, which is a hassle, but it's still possible. Um, and so, and they all often have high vacancy or high delinquency. So those are things that you can do from an operational point of view when you move in almost immediately. We, I, I'm telling you the truth. We invested in a Colorado self-storage facility that had 80% occupancy. So basically the, you know, had a nice amount of, you know, 15% or so upside just from filling that void. It prices were probably 20 to 25% below market and get this, they had 80% delinquency from their tenants. Now, those are all three easy to fix for a pro, you know? So those, I mean, basically almost doubled the NOI within several months just by fixing those things. But there's other value adds in self-storage. For example, you can add a pay bill, paid billboard space. You can add a cell tower. You can add a propane filling station. You can add an ATM machine. Those are all possibilities, but there's easier things than that. You can add U-Haul. If you're in the right location, you can get a contract with U-Haul and you can, even if you're a smaller facility, you can release U-Hauls out of your location. Let's look at the math on just this one thing, okay? Now, I uh, have seen U-Haul commissions anywhere from, let's say, around $1,000 a month up to a friend of mine who has a $5,000 a month U-Haul commission invoice uh, every month in the Bradenton, excuse me, not Bradenton, Rockledge, Florida. Let's just do 3,000 a month. Imagine you could add 3,000 a month without adding any CapEx to your facility. 
3,000 a month is $36,000 a year. Now our value formula in commercial real estate, as your listeners know, is the value is the net operating income divided by the cap rate. Well, it's likely that that employee is already there. They're already doing, you know, they're already working. They're already, you know, they have time to check out these U-Hauls to a new, you know, uh, renter. And then when it comes back, just checking it over and sweeping it and then parking it back in the right spot. And so um, this is probably going to add $36,000. This revenue will probably translate right over to the net operating income. So $36,000 divided by, let's say, a 6% cap rate, that's $600,000 in additional value. Now, if you bought a $2 million facility with, let's say, a million dollars debt and a million in equity, if you add 600,000 to the value of that facility, you just added 60% to the value of the equity. The bankers don't share in this upside. Right. And so it is a major, major value add. There's point of sale items like selling locks, boxes, tape, and scissors. You can add RV and boat storage. A lot of times we'll hear a seller say, yeah, this comes with like five or 10 extra acres out back. We don't ever use that. Well, great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, COVID <laughs> has driven the demand for RV and boat storage through the roof. And you can incrementally gravel or pave an area and you can lease that to all kinds of wonderful tenants. You can also add climate controlled units. Some of these old tired looking facilities, if you could, if it's in the right location add a beautiful climate control building out front, and that is a huge potential value add. And there's a lot more. So hopefully that gives folks an idea. So the value add strategy would be buying a mom and pop facility or any facility, adding a lot of the you know professional management, a website, an actual website, marketing. Um, sometimes if they're a small facility going to automated, I, got a, I know a guy who has an automated model where he has 12 facilities run by one person sitting at her desk, surrounded by monitors with security and two-way talking capability to these, you know, at the gates. And they monitor and manage all 12. That's a huge savings in labor. Uh, there's also downsides to that, I will say, and that's in the book. Um, the, you can't, you know, do the U-Haul or the retail items when you have a remote uh, operating model like that. But that's a quick overview of the value add model, Dante. And I'll take a breath and let you ask another question. <laughs> yeah, no, that was great. And exactly what you're talking about, you know, having these uh, facilities operated automatically or manned by one person at a desk, you know, you are missing on some opportunities, but you have to look at maybe the payroll or the management uh, costs there. And it is, does it make sense to give up those dollars to give up dollars somewhere else. Totally understand that. And like you were talking about that extra land, that extra acreage, um, some people just see it as additional land, but we see it as value added. You know, whether you're looking at a facility, we're always looking at the easiest option, gravel, RV storage, boat storage, easiest, uh, most cost efficient to add value. I think like you're saying billboard, if you're by a busy road, um, even for multifamily, we look for additional land sometimes because maybe we can install a bark park, a playground, a picnic area, or maybe some uh, storage on facility on site for the, the residents. 
So many different options there. Love that. And love the four different options you talked about. And you definitely talk about them in your book and you go into detail in that. Uh, let's kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about how um, something right now we're seeing is rampant inflation. Inflation, inflation. We keep hearing about it. We keep seeing it in numbers. We keep seeing it in reports. Paul, talk to us about what inflation means for commercial real estate and how as investors, we can actually benefit from that. Yeah, I've got a handful of $10 trillion bills here. Unless you think I'm wealthy, <laughs> these are from Zimbabwe. $10 trillion, that's called hyperinflation. I don't think, and I don't think any of us think that the U.S. currency is going to hyperinflate. But if it does, well, heaven help us all. Now, some of us are old enough to remember the inflation of the late 70s, actually early 70s, then again in the late 70s that ran in through the uh, early to mid 80s. That inflation went rampant. Interest rates also went completely out of control. Uh, actually, they were in control of Paul Volcker, the head of the Federal Reserve, and they made intentional decisions to finally stop inflation by raising interest rates to unbelievable heights. There were literally people paying 19% interest to get their mortgage. Yes. And so um, this, and we're not talking about from loan sharks. And so um, inflation for any, most anybody my age has just this queasy feeling in your stomach, like this is awful. I remember when, you know, people who had a, a pension check or a social security check that would cover two months of their mortgage or rent. Now all of a sudden it covered two weeks. And a lot of these people were devastated because they weren't ready for it. Well, I'm not saying inflation's not that bad, but I am saying that we are in a unique time in human history with the approximate low of 5,000 years of earth history as far as interest rates combined with inflation that's much higher than anybody anticipated. You know that they've printed 30 and some reports say 40% of all the US currency ever printed has been since COVID in about the last two years. And so there's inflation for sure. We knew it was coming and it's now, you know, they can't really deny the fact that it's even higher than they say. The, the Cantillon effect, Richard Cantillon, an Italian economist said, follow the source of power and the source of money and you will find the place to make the most money. Well, to build the most wealth, I should say. And so the two most powerful entities in the world are federal governments and federal reserves. And they've aligned to make a whole lot of money for somebody. We all know that. Well, we can align ourselves with them by buying real estate with low fixed interest rate debt while the debt is still you know, low interest rate for a long time, and then allowing inflation to do its work to increase revenues while we hold that debt constant. Think about it. In 1971, the average house price was, I think, $18,000. My parents paid about $32,000 for a house that year. And that was kind of high dollar. Well, imagine you know that mortgage payment of, let's call it $150 a month. Imagine how little that impacted people's paycheck. 30 years later, at the end of that 30-year payout, 
when, you know, in 2000 or so, $150 for a mortgage seems silly. It's so cheap. Well, it's the same thing that could happen now over the coming years. If you can get low fixed interest rate, long-term mortgage uh, and hold it while inflation increases your revenues, that growing margin will actually translate to growing net operating income for you and growing wealth for you and your investors. Yeah, it's great. I mean, as we see residents in our buildings or tenants, their wages grow, inflation, you know, the minimum wage is going to rise or whatever that is, or the cost of everything is going to go up and rent is, but our debt is going to stay the same if we lock in that low rate. Uh, a project we just closed on last month, uh, a Freddie agency loan, we locked in a seven-year term of 3.49%. We were pretty happy about that. And we know that as we hold that project for those five to seven years, and we increase rents and increase the value, our income's going to go up, but really our debt expense, you know, some of our other expenses will go up with inflation, but a large one like our debt expense is going to stay the same. So therefore, uh, that gap of what we're going to be able to make the potential income is going to increase every year. And like you were just saying, Paul, I, my wife and I were building a home right now. And I did a construction loan that uh, automatically matures into a perm loan at the fixed interest rate for 30 years of 3%. So I will have that interest rate on my property for 3%, which I would have liked to get sub 3%, but on a construction loan, I think that's, it's pretty strong. So mm -hmm. taking advantage of that is great. And especially like you said, in an, uh, an inflation market, like we're seeing yeah, talking absolutely. about interest rates as well, like we are, where do you see interest rates going? Obviously none of us have a crystal ball. None of us can predict what's going on, yeah. but where would you peg interest rates to go? What direction are they going to be stagnant? Are they going to increase plateau? And how does that affect the market a little bit and people's buying power in commercial real estate? Yeah, well, of course, the Fed has been threatening or warning of these increased interest rates and all these different rate hikes that are coming over the next couple or many quarters. I wonder if they're trying to scare inflation back, meaning I wonder if they're actually trying to scare people into believing there's more inflation or more interest rate hikes to hold inflation back. I don't know. Time will tell. I really don't have a gauge on this one, but I will say this from my understanding of the massive, massive debt the U S government has, if they raise interest rates too much, it's going to, I don't even know how they can imaginably pay higher interest rates or much higher interest rates on that debt. I mean, let's face it. They can't pay it now. They're right. printing money to pay it. They're inflating it away. Uh, and just like for the U.S. government, if, you know, $40 trillion seems like a lot today, well, maybe over, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, if there's a lot of heavy inflation, $40 trillion won't seem that bad. Right, right. Yeah. And the part I always wonder about, and, you know, I'm young, so I don't really have that experience to know otherwise, is if the borrowing power of an investor um, decreases because it becomes more expensive with interest rates, what's that going to do to, to property values possibly? You know, if you can only borrow so much to hit that return that you're looking to hit or your investors need to hit, um, you may need to pay a little bit less for the property to get that return. So that's something to think about too. But then you look at, um, again, with inflation wages or uh, earnings go up, so therefore rents go up. So maybe mm -hmm. that kind of bridges the gap because 
you can't pay as much, but now the income's higher. So maybe you can pay enough. So it's a big question mark and it's going to be very interesting to see how that turns out. Yeah. Can I share a thought on that? Oh, definitely. That's why I'm here I just for wrote an, <laughs> I just wrote an, a bigger pockets article that's not published yet. Um, and it's, it's, I guess it's clickbait. Don't tell anybody, but, uh, the title, if, if I get my way with the bigger pockets editors, the title will be something like why you need to raise your rent 33% just to break even. And, um, what I'm saying is if you're you buying, got my attention, <laughs> we'll test this out. If you're buying a stabilized multifamily or any commercial asset at a 3% cap rate, I know most of us aren't buying at 3%. I know you're not, but a lot of people are, especially these folks in all the training courses in Dallas that have access to oil and gas money, but they don't have a ton of, well, anyway, I'll I'll leave it at that. Anyway, (laughs) let's say they buy a 33% cap, uh, excuse me, a 3% cap rate. If that cap rate moves up to 4%, do the math. It's not hard to do. If that cap rate moves up to 4%, your denominator of our value equation just expanded by 33%. Okay. Now you're going to have to raise the income, the NOI, that means cutting costs and increasing revenues by 33% just to break even before you have to refinance the loan or before you told your investors you would sell. If there's a 2% move in cap rate, heaven help them. But anyway, you get the idea. Now that effect would only be a 10% effect if you were at 10% cap rate and moved to 11. But a 3% cap rate, it is a massive move to get from three to four. And I could tell you that if that means we're in a really bad economy and folks who didn't experience 2008 might not believe that's coming or could come, but Howard Marks and Warren Buffett and Ray Dalio and Charlie Munger and all those guys will tell you it will come when it comes. If that happens, um, it's likely going to be a really hard time to raise rents. So it might be really hard to do that. And so my solution to all this in my article is buy properties with buried intrinsic value. And what I mean is value add. Yep. Buy properties that have, like we just went through like 12 value add opportunities in self-storage. Buy apartments or light industrial or bowling alley, whatever you're buying, find value add opportunities that allow you to increase the numerator more than you think the denominator could possibly go up. Because if you don't, and you have a higher interest rate at refi and all this stuff, it could be a recipe for trouble. And it has been the history, the streets of history are littered with people who thought it's different this time. Right. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I think, um, if we do see a, a correction or an adjustment in the market, a lot of people will be exiting the game because they just, they purchased a little too high or a little bit too, like you were saying, 3% to 4%, something we just exercised on that last deal we just closed last month is we purchased at a 5.09 uh, cap rate, an inline T12 on an 86 vintage product in a, a very high growth market in the, the Charlotte MSA. And we projected our exit cap rate at 6%. So we did about nice. just a little bit less than a 20 basis point increase annually for each year we held the property. And, and that way, you know, if 
cap rates do decompress and start to come up a little bit, we know we can still hit these projections to our investors. And something else that we're starting to do on our offerings is instead of just showing a projected exit cap rate with the IRR and the equity multiple, we'll show what we think it'll be uh, plus or minus 10 basis points, plus or minus another 10 basis points. So it kind of gives a gauge of um, what the investor wants to assume the exit cap's going to be. You know, if we mm-hmm. exit at the same cap rate, here's your phenomenal returns that we don't even think we're going to get. If we, you know, exit 100 basis points higher, if we're 120 basis points higher, and we kind of show this graph and just, it's not that it's not holding us accountable, but it's really letting the investors take the rein and see what, what they want to get for returns. And, you know, those people that are a little bit lower on the cap rate or maybe a little bit more aggressive or uh, excited about the project. And then those a little bit more conservative will find themselves higher up on the chart. So we found a, a lot of success with that model for our investors. Yeah. Right. And somebody so. with big, a bigger pockets is going to argue with me. I mean, at least always in my post here. I <laughs> All hope those experienced do. investors on there have been investing for six months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now someone will argue and say, look, you wrote, you wrote an article six months ago saying inflation will raise the, you know, the revenue and therefore raise the numerator. And that's absolutely tra- correct. Another factor is that there is a legitimate supply shortage in multifamily and single family across a lot of places, a whole lot of places actually in the U.S. And it's going to stay here for at least five years. So that shortage plus inflation could save the day for many people who are in that cap rate decompression situation. Yeah. Lots to think about, a lot to discuss, Paul. And I love having you on to having these educated conversations about this. So this has been awesome. We're going to head over to our next section of the show before we send you off called the curious cues. So some questions we each, uh, we ask each guest before they head out. Are you ready? Yeah, you bet. Awesome. First question is favorite podcast you enjoy listening to. You know, I really like Hunter Thompson's passive mm, cash yep. flow podcast. He's got so many. I mean, I've learned so much from him over the years. I wish I had more time to listen to it. But I have to say, I also really st- love We Study Billionaires from the Investors Podcast Network. Awesome. I'll have to check that second one out. I haven't seen that one. But uh, Hunter Thompson's got great book out as well, along with this podcast. So lots of value he always adds. Um, speaking of books, favorite book you enjoy reading doesn't have to be real estate related. Yeah. One thing I I gave it away. One book (laughs) that I really, uh, love is called the one thing. And most of us know this book by Gary Keller and actually more written by Jay Papazon, his writing partner. Uh, Jay told me personally, uh, we got to talk at the bigger pockets conference that he, this was like a five or seven year labor of love, that short book, but what a powerful impact it's had on me and on the world. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Great, great book. Biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome for all the years you've invested. What's the, the hardest thing you've had to do with real estate? Uh, right here. If you're watching, it's right between my ears. It's uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. Yeah. It's chasing shiny objects. And it's not knowing initially years ago, not knowing the difference between investing and speculating. You know, investing is when your principles generally safeguarded and you've got a chance to make a return. Speculating is when your principles not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And so when we invest in Bitcoin, and I have, uh, when we throw money to the bottom of a hole in the ground, 
expecting oil and gas to come back out. And I have, uh, we're speculating and it's really right. important to know the difference. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. How about uh, favorite real non real estate related hobby? What do you enjoy doing in your free time? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I used to say writing blog posts or writing these books and things, and that's a terrible answer. I love my family. You might not know it, but seriously, <laughs> I, I, I love hanging out with my family, watching movies. As we record this today, my wife and I have already got a movie plan for tonight, February 1st. It's Groundhog Day, or at least the night before, and that's the night we watch it every year. So I love doing that. Love four-wheeling and fishing with my son, hanging out with my daughters, and I personally also play bass. Awesome. I love it. And uh, last question we have for you, newbie advice. So what advice would you give to someone that's looking to get started in the real estate space? Yeah, I would definitely, you know, take into account that investing versus speculating issue. I would probably go grab Howard Mark's book, Mastering the Market Cycle, and then his previous book, which was called The Most Important Thing. And those would be super wonderful principles to apply to your real estate investing career. It'll really convince you that it's not different this time. There's always cycles and you should always expect things to change. Awesome. Paul, this has been phenomenal. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on the show again. Thanks for sending me a copy of the book. Really appreciate that. I love the uh, the handwritten notes in there too, in the front cover. Cause I, you know, I just think that's the coolest thing I've got. Tons of books. All the authors write to me in them. I think that's awesome. That personal touch. If I, yeah. Paul, if someone wanted to get in touch with you or invest with uh, Wellings Capital, how can they do so? Yeah, they can go to our website, which is Wellings, W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com. And if they'd like a free special report on self-storage, mobile home parks, or commercial real estate in general, uh, they can go to wellingscapital.com slash resources. Awesome. This has been great. We'll uh, talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks, Dante. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.